this morning, there's been two topics on my mind, one that sort of came out of a dream that I had, and the other one that came out of some of the reading that I did. And I was just not sure which way I wanted to take. One direction is heavier and more personal, while the other is a bit lighter and more, I think, open to question marks if it's going to yield any kind of interesting conversation. But since I challenge you with giving me a word and letting that word dictate which direction we're going to take, in my mind, it was sort of a, is it going to be a serious word or a funny word? You said banana. So I think the case is settled in which direction we're going to go. So I wanted to talk about two little moments that I found delightful in the book Demons by Dostoevsky. So I'm still working through the book. I'm like 45% through with it. It's still for sure not my favorite book of Dostoevsky. And it's still... Is it, is it a little bit more favorite? Because all I've been hearing you say about this is kind of this, I'm reading it, I'm hoping it gets somewhere. I, I feel like we're now kind of taking, the book is now opening up to what the real plot will be, finally. Okay, okay. So I get a bit satisfaction by that because I feel like, yeah, now we're getting to something. Like, as I said, it feels like 40% of the book was a very deep setup to get to the main characters and the main plot line, right? So almost like, imagine if for half the movie you were watching, you were seeing the story about the parents of the main characters, but you don't know that, right? You just see like this older lady and this her neighbor, and you see kind of the relationship they have and the neighbor going to bars and, you know, philosophizing with the youth and the lady meeting other ladies. And you think this is a movie about these two people or like some of these older people, but constantly there are more and more characters introduced and the entire time you're wondering, there's not enough drama, but there's also not no drama, but you're not really sure. It's a very slow cook, right? Where this is going. And then all of a sudden, their children are introduced. And then you realize, oh, most likely the story is about the children and what they're going to do. And I'm sure he has very good reasons why I needed to know all this about the parents first right? But, you know, it's hard to get to that point in the book, especially if you don't know for certain. And so that's sort of where we're at right now. But now kind of things are heating up a little bit. And I feel like soon I will know what's really going on. But I had two delightful little moments this morning in the book. One was almost a throwaway, but I caught it or it caught me where this main character, this like kind of young, mysterious son of this very wealthy lady who maybe is crazy, maybe isn't, maybe is very scrupulous and a very bad character, but maybe is not. It's very unclear, you know, what his character is like. He's walking around at night and visiting some main characters to figure out some stuff. And on the way to one, he meets this convict that has escaped the working camps that he had heard of, who was waiting for him to bag him for money. And that character is kind of delightful, very much in the Dostoevsky way of delightful, whereas this kind of convict that is, is a robber and a murderer is so weak and so kind of like, I don't know, Gollum-like, you know, in that he's just very like beneath everybody, but you can tell that there's real cowardice there, but also the ability for violence if he's safe enough and secure enough to believe that he can win, right? And anyway, so that character says something that really caught me where he talks about some 
other person and that person's judgment and treatment of him. And he goes, oh, he has met me. He knows I'm desperate for money and for a Russian passport. And he thinks he's figured me out. He's the sort of character that gets to know a side of a person and thinks he knows the whole story. And so he lives a very simple life because once he meets you and makes you out, maps you out in his mind, he now can live with you forever because he feels like he knows you. But it's true. I am a coward, but maybe I'm a coward on Monday and Tuesday, I might be quite courageous. Maybe I'm really stupid in some areas, but much smarter than him in others, right? He's basically, he was kind of saying, this guy thinks he's totally figured me out, which is his absolute weakness because he has figured out a part of me, but he doesn't know everything that's within me. And because he has figured out a part of me so quickly and is so satisfied with it, there's zero curiosity for him to figure out more. So I can just play into that. And with that, I have much more control over him than he has over me, although he thinks he has all power over me because he's much wealthier, smarter, much more educated. But his the big weakness is in this arrogance that he believes he knows everything about him. And I thought that that was, you know, we've talked so much about this theme of, you know, that we are more than just what meets the eye, more than just what we know about ourselves, that we are so multifaceted. There's so many different parts within us that we really carry all of humanity, any kind of character that exists that we can relate to or even recognize, a part of it, a fraction of it must live within us somehow, somewhere, so we can recognize and we have so much complexity in us. And so I both loved that little dialogue in the book because it reflects back to a philosophy that I have about people inside of themselves. But it also reflected back a certain arrogance that I've always or most of my life had. It's gotten, it's changed slightly. The edges are kind of rounded off a little bit, but it's still there fundamentally is that I have this instinct to judge people really quickly. I've always had this as far as I can remember, even as a child. And for most of my life, I've been a fairly, I don't know, I even hesitate to say I've been a good judge of character. Good judge of character, yeah. Yeah, yes. You know, not perfect for sure. Many, many, many mistakes, but on average, amongst all the people that I've interacted with, people would recognize me as a very good judge of character. And certain things I can sniff out very quickly, certain weaknesses in people, right? If they're false, if they're lying, if they're inauthentic, if they're insecure, if they're incongruent in some way, if something about them is inauthentic, that's something that usually I can feel and sense very quickly. So I've used that very brashly, right? Most of my life, I meet somebody and the first program that runs in my mind is to figure out what is their weakness? Am I going to open up to this person or am I going to cast them out of my world, right? It's either yes or no. You're either in or out. And if you're out, I then sort of shut down and I everything I do from that point is trying to minimize any kind of interaction or time investment that I make into you and give you zero access to my life, right? And this is not just if you're a terrible person. If you just, if you can't get over that threshold of, in my mind, feeling like this is an authentic, honest person, then I'm like, ah, not interested. And that has saved me from many heartaches and from many problems in life, right? Because I've never really been taken advantage of by anybody in that way. But that sort of very harsh, very quick judgment also comes with a very kind of, with a worldview that is exactly what this character was 
saying that I figure out some weakness or some inauthenticity of you right in this moment and I'll cast you away. But, you know, I don't know you. I know maybe how you are in this moment to me or how you appear to be, but I don't know how you are tomorrow morning to somebody else. And again, there's certain situations where you have to make very quick judgments and that's fair. And you can't get to know everybody. It takes a lifetime to even attempt to get to know yourself. And most of us will fail at this attempt. So saying that you want to give everybody a fair chance and get to know them really who they are, it's, that is not possible probably within a, a lifetime, but it did sting. It did hit and resonate in some way where I thought, yeah, this is still within me. That possibility of judging someone or seeing something in someone. Oh, this person is really like I used to do this in interviews with people until people started giving me feedback that, yeah, every candidate that I got to talk to was a lot more nervous than when they were talking to other managers within our company first. And then these managers would tell me, yeah, but motherfucker, you're like the CEO and people, these people, you know, and sometimes let's say when we would hire some salespeople, they're huge fans of yours. They've been watching your videos for listening to your podcast for years. Now they talk to you. Of course, they're way more nervous than when they talk to me first. So having that filter of realizing what is the situation. And yes, this person is acting in this way in this very situation, but that doesn't mean I figured them out. That doesn't mean I know them and I can shut down and close the book on them. This is who this person is. End of story. I don't need to know anything more. Sometimes that's the right thing to do because you're limited in time and that's the job. Like when you're interviewing people, you don't have time to really get to know people super deeply. But in other situations, maintaining that humility of going, this person appears to be this way for me right now, but who knows? I've increased that level of humility in many areas when it comes to judging people's behavior, but I don't know, listening or reading this part of the book in the morning made me smile and say, yeah, that there's probably, there's so much potential for mistakes and misjudgment because of that lack of humility that ignorance of arrogance, right? That thinking you've figured out somebody very quickly and then thinking you know exactly who they are and how they are and how they're going to act in all situations. That can be a kind of a big pitfall. And the way that this like throwaway side character said these words was, you know, very Dostoevsky in that mm -hmm. it was so clever and so smart. And it's such a throwaway little line in a throwaway little part of half a page but there's so much wisdom in it. There's such depth in it. So beautiful. The second part that I wanted to touch on that was also delightful, but you know, not in that way, I think more deep in a different way, was that the same character, this like young guy that's, I want to say nebulous, but there's a better word for it. Very, not ambiguous, nebulous. It's very unclear who he is, what his character is. He goes to meet this poor girl, this poor woman that's lame, and mentally not fully there. She's like a little bit crazy, sort of, you know? And it turns out that he had, he's like a very kind of in of the society, very high caliber, you know, in the market to be married to another, you know, lady sort of prince. And turns out that he married this lame, crazy lady a while ago in secret. Nobody knows this. And so there's a a lot of drama going around this. He thinks or he's proclaiming that he's going to announce it to everybody, but his motives are not clear at all. At this point in the book, it's not clear if he did it because he loves kind of her vulnerability and her pureness of heart or because 
he's so cynical that he wants to throw away his marriage and he wants to shock his mother and society and he wants to shit on everybody. And it's like a big joke for him. It's not clear, right? It's like, it's very much playing to both sides and you really don't know yet what it's going to be at the end. But he goes to visit her at night and just a week prior for the very first time, due to a number of accidents and weird circumstances, this little lame kind of crazy girl got to meet his mother and a bunch of people of society, of course, them not knowing that she's married to him, that she has any relationship to him. And so he meets her and he talks to her and they're going back and forth a little bit. And at some point he goes, you know, where you insulted by that, you know, visit. It seems like the way they looked at you and the kind of energy, you know, the, the way that she felt around all these kind of people of his family hurt her or injured her or insulted her. And she felt like they were pitying her. And she goes something to the effect of like, them pitying me? No, I pity them. So much, there's so much wealth, so much beauty, and still everyone is angry. No one can find any joy. Nobody can laugh from the heart with each other. There's so much falseness everywhere. And I thought that that, and then it kind of keeps going on in the dialogue, but I I really, there's two things that stood out to me. It was not that surprising that Dostoevsky writes a character in there that's like poor and, you know, lame and a little crazy, a little weird, and that that person has maybe more wealth than the rich people of society or recognizes that they are very poor in their heart and in their soul. But when he wrote or had her say, nobody can even laugh from the heart. That sort of like struck with me, you know, those words. And I thought there's such deep truth to this. This is personal to me. I think for a long time, very rarely was I able to laugh fully from the heart. I would make people laugh, right? I would make a lot of crack, a lot of jokes in the smart ass, cynical, cool type category. I liked making people laugh and I would laugh for certain, but usually there was a good amount of control in my life. And I wasn't aware of this at all. And then I remember one day in New York, walking through Central Park, Sophie and I had taken some, a small dosage of LSD and we had like a beautiful day of walking through New York and philosophizing about the universe and, and the world. And at some point it started raining like crazy and everybody disappeared from Central Park. It, it poured and we were sitting on this little stone bridge and looking at each other and just drenched. It was raining and raining and raining and we were laughing so much about that situation. The situation was so surreal. And afterwards, you know, and we took some pictures together, like in the rain, kind of sitting next to each other on this little bridge. And afterwards, one of those pictures stood out to me where we both laugh. And Sophia and my good friend, our good friend, said, I've never seen you laugh this openly. He's like, you're laughing like a child here. I love it. You laugh so openly, so freely here. And those words stuck with me. And over the years, and we had talked about this, I had mentioned, I don't know if I had mentioned this on the podcast or not, but I mentioned that in the past, when I would see this laughter, this kind of smile on my face on pictures, I would always delete the pictures because to me, it seemed stupid. It looked stupid and goofy, like I'm an idiot. So it was unattractive to my eyes. I didn't want to laugh like that. But it was actually the most beautiful laugh because it was the free, the open, the laugh from the heart. And that does not look cool necessarily on me. It doesn't look controlled. It doesn't look smart. It just looks joyous and innocent and open and free. And recently, one thing that I noticed is that I laugh like that a lot more. I see this kind of 
laughter and smile on myself, on pictures or videos a lot more. And that's sort of a, what I would assume a leading, you know, key indicator, you know, a KPI I'm tracking closely that is encouraging. I'm like, oh, this is probably a good sign. You know, whatever is going on in my life, it's probably a good sign to laugh more openly, to laugh more from the heart. And when I read these words, like when she said, all this wealth, all this beauty, all this power, and nobody can even laugh from the heart. I was like, I don't know. It really hit me hard. I was like, that is so true. Maybe there's a little bit of sorrow in me because I recognize, yeah, there has been a long period of my life where I don't feel like I was able to laugh from the heart. I'm like, wow, there's a, a sorrow that comes with that realization. There's a recognition of all these circles of power that I'm part of, all these people I know that are so wealthy and so successful and so smart and so beautiful and so healthy and so blessed. And even they can't even laugh from the heart, you know, they can't. And I'm like, wow, yeah, such poverty, you know, amongst humanity, such tremendous poverty inside. It's the sort of famous quote of Bob Marley. Uh, some people are so poor, all they have is money. You know, it's like a lot of people work so hard, so tremendously hard to be someone. And then they become that someone. And it's so empty. It's so empty. And they're so afraid to be who they are, to be true to themselves in that moment. That was such a beautiful little observation. You know, you can say it in many different words, but the they can't even laugh from the heart, I felt was really poignant. And it really like struck a chord with me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you can even like, I almost feel like the one and the other connect together, like the first thing and the second thing from the book. Because sometimes these, you know, these people that are so successful and rich and wealthy and powerful, right? They might be in their circle with rich and powerful people where they can't laugh from the heart, but maybe there's a part of them that they can only open up with, you know, one certain person or a certain group of people where they then can do that, right? And it's again, this in one circle, you might just be stuck in this role. And in another circle, you might be someone different. Yeah. Well, think about it this way. You know, people, maybe I've even said this, I've definitely thought this at some point, you know, we all, or it's not that unusual, let's say it this way. It's not that unusual to feel that there are a few selected people that you can be your full self with, mm -hmm. right? Where you're like, ah, oh, I can really relax and be myself when I'm around this person. But it, that is usually a very small number of people. Yeah. And if you think about the reverse, like, you know, what would a life look like where you feel like you feel with your closest friend, where you feel most free around? What yeah. if your life felt like that all the time around uh, anyone? Yeah. Right. It's a good uh, something to aspire to. That is something to aspire to. Would isn't shouldn't life, couldn't life, wouldn't it be beautiful for life to be more like that? And who makes the decision when you can be like this or not? It's not like somebody is allowing you out of a cage. You yourself, we ourselves decide when we feel safe to get out of the kitchen, when not. But safe in what way? Safe in the way that we think, well, how are we going to be judged? How are people going to respond and react to that. And there's good reasons that we are careful and cautious and protective because, I mean, I see it now with my children, you know, 10 and eight years old, especially the 10 year old that's very kind of socially sensitive and a very acute extrovert. I see it how attuned he is to other children, to the kids in school, what they will like, what they won't like, and how important this is to him and how great it feels when he hits the note right? 
and when he gets that response he wants and how injured he is when he gets it wrong, right? And yeah. I also see what kind of a shark tank it is. I mean, Jesus Christ, every day these kids are merciless with each other. They really are. They really are. They give each other the business and that's all they have is just to look at each other. And if, you know, if there's a little blood in the pool, they're going to come and eat you up. <laughs> there's no mercy there. And so, you know, we learned this at a young, very vulnerable age, and then we carry that along all our lives, but we don't have to. At some point, we're adults. We're not children anymore if we're awake to that fact. And wouldn't life be incredible if we could feel as free as we do with our best friend, with anyone? Stranger, the neighbor, the bank teller, doesn't matter. Like, why can't we feel free? It's a choice. Needs courage sometimes because somebody might not like who we are in that moment, but who knows who likes who anyways most of the time? You know what I mean? Like most of the time, especially day to day, there's so much theater that we all play. The neighbor plays nice and I play nice and he thinks something of me and I think something of him or he's insecure about what I think about him and I'm insecure about what he thinks about me. And all that results into nothing. It's not like once you actually have a, you know, there's some people that can really influence your life in terms of your boss, job, colleagues, clients, that kind of stuff. But in the day-to-day, what someone thinks of you or not thinks of you compared to your freedom, right? It's a high price to pay to go, I'm going to put on this costume so that everyone that sees me maybe will think highly of me. But the price for that is I have to sit in this cage, like a little caged bird, versus I'm going to walk around in any kind of stuff I want. And some people will think I look good and some people will think I'm ugly, but I'm free to roam the world. (laughs) You know, I can go wherever I want. It's a very high price to pay to most of the time, not even accomplish the goal, right? You sacrifice so much for the approval of others. And how certain are you of that approval? How certain really are you ever? And what does it amount to, to get approval, right? What really does it in many cases? And the more often you do that, the longer you play that game, the more you kind of, or the more difficult it gets to, to get out of it because you build your entire life around this with each passing day, right? Yeah, eventually you don't know there's a cage. You don't know you wear a costume. You don't know anymore. You forget who you are. This is life. This is you. And that's when you've lost yourself, which is, you know, that's the highest price you could pay. And related to this, there's also sometimes people that we go, oh, with this person, I'm this way. Like there's certain groups of cliques where we wear different costumes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this is a burden. Sometimes it's kind of delightful because I can express this artistic side of me when I go to this whatever art club, but I hide that part of me from everyone else. That's not part of this small group of society that I know will approve of this because they're also interested in this, right? Yeah. And I've struggled with this in the past where you become too compartmentalized in your life, where you go, well, my family doesn't care about books, so we'll never talk about any book I read to them. I have these two friends that love books, so I'll talk with them only about books. And I have these other friends that they also have children, so with them I can talk about children. These people are entrepreneurs, so I'll talk. I have like... Only one topic or one thing that I'll touch on. And since I'm so multifaceted, I always have to be part of all these groups or talk to all these people to get a little bit of a fill of all of this, right? Because otherwise there's too big of a part of me that isn't recognized. If I spent a couple of weeks just with my family, I'm like, oh my God, I so yearn to talk about literature. I so yearn to express my artfulness. And that as well is something where eventually you have to ask yourself, why don't you maybe take the courage to open up 
and show more of your full self to these different groups. Now, you don't have to like blabber on forever and bore people to death with your hobby or your passion that you see that they're not interested in, but you don't also have to hide it and suppress it, never bring it up at all, right? And it has taken me a while and still working on this, on opening up and talking to the people that are closest to me, like a lot of my family members, about the things I'm interested in, not just talk about what I know they are interested in, which is nice at times, but always ends in an unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and oftentimes kind of an empty feeling on my end where I go, well, they seem to like this two-hour coffee that we have and all the things we talked about, but I wasn't able to be seen at all. I wasn't able to show myself. And I think ultimately it's also unfulfilling for them because they can tell that Yes, this person worked hard to see me, but they didn't show themselves to me. I couldn't see them. You know, it's not a give and take, which usually and mostly feels more fulfilling than when you feel like the relationship is one-sided, even if you apparently are getting the better end of it. So learning who we are, having and finding the courage to show who we are to more and more people and allowing also our, you know, multifaceted self, our, our full self to be more revealed to the world. Uh, and with that, to aspire to more and more freedom, I think is a, a worthwhile goal and maybe one, for certain, not the only, but maybe one of the, the little hallmarks of that is when you're around friends, when you're around family, when you're around your colleagues or work, when you're around your neighbors, how freely can you laugh? Can you laugh from the heart? Was everything that happens there sort of polite smiles that are masked and everything is a masquerade and a dance, but ultimately false and empty.